You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. After Jerry died, the cops wouldn't stop harassing me. They couldn't prove anything. They actually thought that I killed him. Anyways, San Francisco got to be a really bad trip after you left. And that's when I remembered you had that extra apartment. Hey. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, Trish. Well, what do men want? Just a pretty woman to love and to take care of them. Love me. Love me. What I'm really interested in is love. You might say I'm addicted to love. You want to take a girl up there now? (laughs) You want some? What is it? I met this great-looking guy, and I used love magic on him. Then he got really weird on me. All these emotions started flowing out of him. Then he got really sick. What is it, Wayne? What is it, baby? What a pussy. What a baby. Wayne. Witchcraft is just a way of concentrating energy only work with what's already there. I just use sex magic to create love magic. (laughs) Sometimes it's almost scary how strong the love gets. And sex magic, of course. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are going to be talking about The Love Witch, directed by Anna Biller and currently making the rounds at some of the world's better film festivals. The Love Witch is the story of Elaine, played by Samantha Robinson, a jilted woman who moves to a new town and wrecks havoc with her quest to find someone new to love her. We'll try to avoid some spoilers on this episode, but we'll definitely be talking a lot about the film. So if you want to be surprised... Track down The Love Witch, watch it, and come on back. We'll still be here. So, Heather, what did you think about The Love Witch? I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It really floored me because uh, it's just there's so much attention to detail, which I have come to learn is a trademark of Anna Biller. She's an auteur. I mean, just looking at her small but very mighty body of work, everything she touches, every frame has just such an impeccable eye, not just visually, but tonally and thought. I just thought it was a very cool, very smart film. Um, There's a lot of like nice kind of almost subversive commentary, I think, on the roles of women 
uh, in society, but in a way that was, I think, really smart. It's not a film that panders to anybody. It's not a film that dumbs down anything. And I love it because on the surface, I think a lot of people are like, oh, this is like kind of a cute, kitschy, sexy occult type movie. And in some ways it is, but it's, it's much, much, much more than that. I was familiar with Anna's work. I actually saw it. Uh, a visit from the Incubus. I'm not sure if I've seen any of her earlier uh, works, like The Hypnotist or Fairy Ballet, these kind of things. But I remember definitely a visit from the Incubus playing at Microcinefest back in, I guess, 2001, maybe 2002 when it first came out. And God, it blew us away. It just was. Uh, so gorgeous to look at. But Microcinefest was kind of famous or perhaps infamous for how many musicals that they played. And this was right there with being a musical. Just terrific. And this was all set, if memory serves, it was set at like a, an Old West place. And so all the costumes and the, the setting and everything looked terrific. And then Viva coming out a few years later, 2007, Again, just completely blew me away. So I was just foaming at the mouth when I knew that Anna had a new film out. It was like, please, I can't wait to see it. Because her films, even though there's some throwback elements to them, they just have such a, a, a look unto themselves that just it's like uh, candy for your eyeballs. But yet there's so much great stuff going on with this, a lot of great themes that it it's kind of – yeah, subversive that it looks so pretty, but can kind of deliver a little bit of a bitter message. I mean, that's always the most powerful kind of filmmaking if you're trying to get people to think about issues. Because I think if you're too overhanded with things, you know, whether it's like political commentary, social, religious, whatever, if you're too overhanded, you're going to lose people automatically. If you make it subversive, that's the way to kind of make it sexy and interesting and kind of make most people kind of step back and be like, huh, wait a minute. And uh, if you can do that as a filmmaker, as an artist in general, then, you know, you know, you've succeeded. So the movie talks a lot about feminism and the roles of women and love and reliance on men and all these kind of heavier issues. But yeah, it does do it in a very sweet way. But then the first time I was watching it, I was just like, am I supposed to like our main character, dislike our main character? I was really kind of torn because I really want to like this woman, but at the same time, she's kind of nuts. So it was just like... I. I was putting in this weird place because I want to pull for this woman. But at the same time, you know, she's pretty okay with murdering people. Oh, I mean, to the point of almost ob- obliviousness, it's, it's a, you know, like a true almost kind of borderline sociopath who feels like what they're doing is not, in fact, not only is it not wrong, but they are, they're almost the victim, you know, like, oh, well, they died. That's not really my fault. I mean, sure, I might have poison them <laughs> or whatever but it's not me you know i'm just there is like sort of a naive i naivete to our titular love witch whose name is elaine beautifully played by samantha robinson who looks like the perfect sylph witchy woman that you could see seducing any willing stole you know if she sets her eyes on there's a lot of like moral ambiguity with elaine too because it's again it's you know that's another aspect of anna as a filmmaker, not giving us the easiest of answers because it would have been a lot easier for her to either make Elaine deliciously evil, like just like a total Edie Williams, she vixen type or the reverse that would have been to make her a total victim 
who's, you know, using her experiences to get back at the patriarchy. And instead you have a blend, which does make things a little uneasy. And at times you're, you're not quite sure how to feel about Elaine because there are things you really kind of dig about her. But then you're like, there are times you feel sorry for her because there's like reveals of just like she has been mistreated all her life. And so you understand how she's kind of turned out the way she has. At the other hand, she's taken it to kind of an extreme where it's not really righting any wrongs for anybody, <laughs> certainly for women and certainly for herself either. But I, but I think that's really, that's one of the things that makes the film really interesting though, because it, it gives you something to chew on. Well, speaking of chewing on things, the idea of the memories that she has, because we, we start off the film very early. We see some images of her ex who is subsequently dead, this guy named Jerry. And there's a sequence fairly early on where we have these memories of her. And what I was talking about, Chewy was him talking about how he found a hot dog in the house that had been there or like under the bed. I think it was (laughs) all of these critiques of her as being a, a horrible, you know, housewife type of thing and some language in there about her being too chubby and all this kind of stuff and I, I'm all, I'm curious if that is her true memories or if that's her interpretation of her memories or what it is but it's fascinating as we get this backstory of Jerry basically we are like the town unto which Elaine comes because we don't really know very much about her at all when we start off. And this film really kind of reveals herself and reveals her backstory to us. And that's one of the things that I enjoy is just seeing, you know, how did she get into witchcraft? How, what is the story with Jerry? What is real? What is not? And then how she proceeds into this new town, how she meets, you know, her new friend, Trish and Trish's husband. And just the way that this, story unfolds and what motivates this person because she is just fascinating to watch on screen and it's such a testament to both i think like samantha's performance but also just the the layers that um both her and and anna biller have created with this character and um the whole use of the occult you know aspects of it with her being a witch is really fascinating because i think the occult had kind of a big resurgence in the 60s particularly like the mid to late 60s and i think there were a lot of women back then that must have found it appealing because it it was a lot more freeing i mean a lot of people still do you know i'm not you know because there isn't like as many conformity kind of bound things for females and a lot of pagan beliefs as there is perhaps in a lot of judeo-christian belief systems and so you know women are you know celebrated as more sexual creatures as having their own power and in fact one detail i loved in this and this is actually very accurate because i've had friends who were pagan and who are pagan where elaine creates a spell bottle and she first she urinates in it and then puts some herbs and then puts her used tampon in it and the thing there are two things i love about that one this is going to probably gross out a lot of the male listeners but listen fellas like mike you're a real man you can handle this don't be squeamish it's a human body what a, you know let's all grow up a little bit but i will tell you this you can tell that a female made this because that used tampon looked very authentic because <laughs> i think if i think a lot of male filmmakers would have just dipped it in some red paint you know or something like that and it's like blood from any part of the body is not bright red that aside <laughs> is that um there's a belief that women, when they're menstruating, are at their most powerful in a lot, you know, as far as like, uh, you know, magic and energy, you know, um, 
menstruation is kind of a sacred thing. And so that she had, she added that little tidbit, you know, and not in a gross way, just of like, this is part of Elaine's power. I thought it was really cool. That's not a detail I think you would see. I'm, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, at least any films where they've had witches where uh, menstruation's been kind of mentioned so um, bluntly. Tampons aren't gross. Women bleed, and that's a beautiful thing. Do you know that most men have never even seen a used tampon? Yeah, I'd be hard-pressed to, to come up with something. There were moments in this film where I was reminded of Haxon, going back to an earlier episode, especially when the uh, witch expert, quote-unquote, is showing pictures from the old books and you know the, the famous picture of the women kissing the devil's ass and kind of an <laughs> anti-Sabbath uh, you know, ceremony and these kind of things. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's very familiar. And just to hear him go through very pedantically explaining the different types of witches and the Wiccan and all this kind of stuff. That's as far as what I was thinking when it came to the witchcraft. And yeah, I can't say that I've ever, as Elaine says in her voiceover, I'm not sure if I've really even seen a used tampon. So <laughs> well, that's okay. I have to take your word on it. That's okay. You know, I mean, I don't, <laughs> it's okay if nobody's seen one. I'm just, as a lady. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, when I saw the illustration, when the you know police, uh, character goes to you know talk with the occult expert uh you know they yeah it's the illustrations and of course there's that wood german woodcut looking art of you know witches kissing the devil's ass and then and he mentions like sacrificing babies and, it, and i thought it was really interesting that like the occult expert on hand that they go to is this very stuffy man and he's just mentioning like the like some stuff that's not even historically accurate about the occult. And it is just sort of playing into this sort of witches are going to kill your babies (laughs) kind of thing. And, oh yes, this practice still goes on, which people believed then. And the, of course this film is set in modern times, which I don't know if a lot of, of listeners, you might easily assume that this film is set in the past of, because of the style, the way that Elaine is styled in her settings and her domicile and some of the other characters. But in fact, kind of a cool thing is that this is technically set in in modern era so you have a bit of like sort of time fuckery uh which i think is really cool yeah i really didn't even realize that until uh trisha's husband richard was talking about the old steve mcqueen films and i was just like the old steve mcqueen films aren't those like current for you and then i was like oh okay this is taking place in a different era this is interesting (laughs) kind of had like a edward scissorhands feel to me where it's like you don't necessarily know what time you're in it feels like there's that kind of kitsch that where you know the family is living in that kitsch but then when you go over to anthony michael hall's character's house and his dad has a vcr and things it's just like oh all right this is set in modern times it's just this kind of the world hasn't really caught up or the the place where edward scissorhands takes place hasn't caught up with the rest of the world 100 percent the first thing that tipped me off because i went into it like the first few minutes you know it's very easy to like see why you'd think oh this is like obviously late 60s early 70s until when she gets into the town and they show the old theater exterior and spinal tap is on (laughs) it's on the uh the like the billboard so it's like oh wait a minute and then of course trish is driving i think like a bmw that looks pretty new even though she herself is dressed like straight out of like 
early 70s uh, J.C. Penney's catalog. Yeah, and we get that title card up over her eye when she's just rocking that blue eyeshadow. Just, yeah, very retro look to her, which is terrific. And then even, and I know that I'm going to sound like a, a male sexist pig when I say this, but rocking even the old undergarments and everything was just absolutely fantastic. You don't see enough garters and stockings in movies these days, and you get it in spades in this film. The costumes, all of them, right down to the lingerie, especially those great sort of um, see-through sort of, I mean, I guess they're teddies. You'd call them sort of like those loose, you know, talking about, I don't, I feel, uh, Mm -hmm. you don't see those really anymore. Uh, Everything's more just sort of uh, all thongs and, you know, angles, whereas, you know, the lingerie of the past was sort of more flowing and feminine looking and it's perfect yeah and uh, i know that anna i know if a lot of people listening to this anna biller like doesn't just direct i mean she's edited this film she wrote it she did the music and made the costumes like holy yeah. cow i mean i mean there are some filmmakers i love that i don't think could could do could do all of that i mean like i love you know i love william friedkin i don't picture him like you know making a frog or composing the music my god what a director you know what a lady yeah and just those sets the sets are so gorgeous oh they're beautiful i mean when you get especially when you see elaine pull up to the ha- like that house that amazing yeah. gothic looking victoriana house which is totally my dream house by the way <laughs> as if anybody's wondering but uh, and you see her apartment and i love the whole dialogue where you find out trish was like the interior decorator and that um the apartment used to belong to barbara who is an old dancer friend of elaine's who was basically her sort of uh con you know conduit to witchcraft or you know the person that kind of got her into the world of witchery i believe that she mentioned that barbara wanted the apartment inspired by the toth tarot deck which was the uh, tarot deck created by uh, Aleister Crowley and uh, Lady Frida Harris. And it's a beautiful deck. I mean, even people who aren't into tarot or Crowley or anything like that, they love that deck because the art in it, like the use of colors and the curves and the lines, it's, it's a gorgeous deck. The artwork in it is exquisite. So I thought that was a really cool uh, reference. I don't think not everybody's going to get a reference to the Toth deck. Yeah, and it just really helps set the scene for all of the witchcraft that we're going to get. And really, she does a great job of painstakingly recreating some of these ceremonies and going through all of the language. And I was laughing a little bit when some of the greetings and some of the uh, you know exclamations and these things that the witches were giving from one person to another. I always remember uh, um, my friend Skiz talking about a, a Wiccan wedding that he went to where... Uh, <laughs> They they spoke in these thick thick Baltimore accents, and so they're like doing the the um, uh, the ceremony. And every time they would do something, they would say, "So mode it be." <laughs> okay, so John Waters clearly needs to make a new film about Wicca <laughs> set in Baltimore because now I want this to be in a film. <laughs> Yeah, the whole scenes of like the the ceremonies with a you know it's never called a coven, but basically sort of the coven that's head by uh, the warlock uh, 
Gagan, uh, who's beautifully played by Jared Sanford, who's been an associate of Anna Biller's for basically in everything she's made, both at times as an actor and producer. And he's he's fan- he's fantastic at everything. That guy really, both of them need to be talked about more, um, which is why we're doing this. But I thought uh, the way that he was styled, but also the way he acted reminded me a lot, and maybe this is just me, of Kenneth Anger. Uh, in particular, like with the robe, it was very much to me uh, reminiscent of uh, invocation of my demon brother because you have scenes in that film of anger himself you know uh doing a ritual on stage wearing this amazing red robe anger's a little more glammed up in it than uh, gayan is in this film but i feel like there's a you know a little bit of kenneth anger there in my opinion which is well, i can see that yeah which is always a good thing i'm always happy to see a kenneth anger reference personally so well even when it comes to uh, anger's use of color and everything i mean because this use of color and the brightness of everything i mean it like i was saying before it is it's very candy colorful and it it kind of mixes the best of Kenneth Anger and like a Douglas Sirk i mean you just feel like you could take a bite out of this film it just looks so sumptuous the two filmmakers I thought of the most watching this was Anger, but the other one to me, especially in the tea room scenes, and I don't know if this was intentional, was Radley Metzger. I felt like there was... I'm glad you said that, yeah. Because <laughs> the tea room scenes right down to like Elaine's hat totally reminded me of Barbara Broadcast, you know, with the way, the way Annette Haven is styled in that film and just, uh, but also Metzger's because, you know, every Radley Metzger film just looks, has that sumptuous look. Radley didn't quite play as much with primary colors as Anna does here, which is, yeah, you're, you're seeing a lot more of the Cirque and perhaps Kenneth Anger influence, but that eye for beauty and detail and composition they're very similar. Like if you liked, I think if, you know, it'd be safe to say if you like Radley Metzger's aesthetics, you're probably going to love Anna Biller's aesthetics as well. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago. I know you weren't on the, the Valerie in the week and our week of wonders episode, but kind of also along the same lines of Celine and Julie, where we've talked about different people being aspects of each other. And as we're looking at the men in this film, it almost feels like they are all facets of the same kind of cruddy jewel you know to see jerry and wayne and richard and then griff and then even maybe a little bit of gay and it's interesting how we see elaine going through these different men in her search for the perfect man to love her and just how all of them end up disappointing in some way I thought that was really interesting uh, as well, especially with, uh, you know, because with some of the characters, you kind of almost are waiting for it to be like these guys at their core. Because like even with like, Wayne, you know, like Wayne's a great example because he's the libertine, you know, English professor, seems like a very happening kind of guy. But, you know, you scratch enough under the surface and, you know, he's basically kind of a child man who ends up really turning, turning poor Elaine off. Or she's just like, oh, I thought he'd be a real man. You know, what a pussy. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, but then and then with Griff, you have sort of just like the, un, you know, basically untouchable man who's purposely has created a shell to where he can never connect with a woman because, deep down he's afraid i mean that's the thing i guess with some of these men there's a fear if they open themselves up too much and realize a woman's an equal is that going to transform them does it mean they're less of a man and with gay it's kind of an interesting i mean you don't get as much that aspect with them 
but the whole gay in character I thought was fascinating because, you know, initially you're like, well, this is a guy who's probably very attuned and he's celebrating women and wanting to empower them. But then you're like, well, he's really hot on the whole sex magic thing. And the other ones almost seem like an afterthought. Like, oh, yeah, we do sigils, whatever. So sex magic. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was expecting to be like, do you want to come up to my cave and look at my etchings? You know, I mean, <laughs> Gayan knows what a lot of guys fi- finally figured out in the, you know, the 80s and 90s and probably well before that. But pagan girls put out, man. You just. <laughs> That's. Are you going to make a T-shirt that says that? <laughs> <laughs> With some pentagrams on either side. Oh, I like little pentagram pasties. Oh, nice. Oh, you could do like a whole like you know a whole witchery. Uh, I'm sure somebody has done this actually. But yeah. Um, but we get, I mean, but you kind of realize that deep down, you know, in a way, he is like all the other guys because it's basically these are men who just are wanting what they want from women is what they want from women. They don't want equality. They don't want, you know, a full human being. They just want a vessel, a figure, you know, um, and nothing deeper than that, which if you think of it, I mean, if, when you really start to think about it, like that's really incredibly disturbing and it's disturbing because there's, you know, there's truth to it. I mean, obviously not for every man. This film isn't, this film is not dumb enough to, I think, stereotype all genders. I think that's great. That's very clear, which I, which I love. Cause I'm, you know, I wouldn't want that personally, you know, people are people But I thought, you know, it's a smart film. I know with like a lot of, this isn't quite tied to the, you know, in a way this is tied to it, but I'm, I remember hearing a complaint from an old uh, coworker of mine who was an older woman and she was dating a guy who was like this old hippie. And, you know, at first she kind of thought, oh, man, this is great because he seemed super liberal and really attuned to women and, you know, celebrated the goddess, yada, yada, yada. But, like, you scratch enough under the surface and he'd be, like, wanting her to be in the kitchen. (laughs) And you realize he's one of those old hippies that basically, oh, yeah, we like women for free love and to take notes while we do the rallies, you know. And you're like, you guys are no better than the, you know, leave it to beaver, you know. You guys are just as fun. You're part of the problem. Just because you're putting some love beats on it doesn't mean you're not as sexist as, you know, somebody's uptight military dad or whatever. Yeah, I'm curious what you think of that speech that Gain gives where he's talking about these women, these witches who are embracing burlesque and, you know, letting their freak flag fly through that and just this, you know, um, women embracing their sexuality and it's okay to show the body and all this kind of stuff. To me, it feels very much like lip service. I'm not sure if you feel the same way or not. I definitely felt that was kind of the intention with the, I mean, with issues, I mean, the thing with most issues in life in general with the human condition is like few things are black and white. You know, the things that are black and white are usually pretty obvious. Like, yeah, don't murder, don't rape, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. With stuff like that, it's a bit of a gray area because there are people who are automatically going to be in a camp where they feel like anything where women are displayed sexually is offensive and sexist. Well, that's not true because then you're saying, well, there's a lot of women who find empowerment through that on their terms. And that's a beautiful thing. And they shouldn't be judged for that. Um, if, But if you know, a man like Gayen you know, it, it, he adds a weird element to it. Cause I'm, you know, on one hand, you know, if you take his speech away from him and just look at it, you're, you could agree with it. You're like, absolutely a woman owning her sexuality. That's awesome. That's beautiful. But then when you see a guy kind of like, yeah, I'm all about female empowerment. Meanwhile, he's got his hand under his robe. You know? You're like, Ooh, dude, you just kind of sullied this for some of us. So it's, it's a, it's a mixed message, but I think that's the same in life. So that's kind of like an honest, fair way to approach it. 
it's not easy. Because I, I do agree with everything that he's saying. It is just kind of more the way that he's saying where I'm just like, yeah, I'm not really buying this from this guy. Yeah, he, he wants to show you his little uh, devil etchings. And I love how the burlesque stuff seems to be happening at an anti-witch bar where like all the townies hate the witches. <laughs> I love the one barfly, that one guy in particular who had such a great character face that guy looked like a dude that would hang out at a bar like that which i thought was funny. i love detail like that and he's just like it's them witches <laughs> what the f- what like it's there it's so weird to have yeah people like you know be like yeah those those like is witchery that big of a you know that's the best thing about the universe like is witchery so much of a problem or people are more worried about like where they're gonna like people having food insecurity nope don't worry about the food insecurity witches <laughs> like them sam witches that was they took our jobs they took all those witches are taking taking our jobs that we didn't even want they took our jobs they're taking our jobs I can't wait to you see the Fox News say <laughs> 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 on witchcraft. I'm sure they'll pull it out around Halloween. That's always a a popular time to show the dark the dark arts. Well, I'm sure you remember the Satanic Panic as much as I do. Oh yes, oh yeah, I know. It's um, I think anybody who was alive in the 80s. I mean, I was I was a little kid, which is actually the perfect age for that because, uh, and of course, being raised in the South near the Bible Belt, you know, it was uh, all kinds of uh, urban legends that I kind of, I get a chuckle out now, but yeah, I remember being like a little kid and somebody being like, Oh, you see that, you see that hill over there. There's Satanists that live over there and they kill people. And I mean, and yeah, I was like, God, that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, but that was the era of Iran Contra and like so many other things that were very real and truly scary, but people were worried, you know, about the devil. Yeah. Don't go in the woods. There's devil worshipers in there. This film was an absolute treat. I am um, and, and such an unexpected treat out of a, a year that's uh, so far giving us, you know, a lot of reboots and comic book fellatio. It was really nice to just see something new that was so fresh and, and different. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I loved it. Well, let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with filmmaker Anna Biller after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
Bluenile.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I remember seeing some of your early stuff, uh, especially the, um, the Incubus movie, way back when uh, at the Microcinefest. Now, that was spectacular. And one of the things that really got to me was your use of color, your use of song, and your use of kind of camp. Is that kind of what you're going for? It's funny because when I'm making a film, when I'm creating a film, I take it very seriously and uh, never think about camp. It's never a motivation of mine or a, a thought that's ever in my head to try to create anything campy. I think actually it's my sincerity that makes it so campy. <laughs> the way that I take it so seriously, it just is so weird. I mean, I think that's the, the tone that you're seeing. Because the visit from the Incubus is a film that I had not seen for years. I almost forgot about it. And recently I was subtitling and I watched it again. And I just could not believe how ridiculous it was. I thought this is the most ridiculous movie I've ever seen in my life. But, you know, when I was making it, I was very earnest. I was very earnest about issues, about feminine identity. There were issues about my personal experience that were very important. There was aesthetic things that I was trying to achieve and I was dead serious. And that's the way I work. And then it comes out very campy. But I think I actually am interested in camp ideas on another level because I'm interested in glamour. And I think that glamour intersects with camp. I mean, I take glamour seriously. So I do love Bob Fosse. You know, I love old musicals. And I have such a deep love for things like that that I think that that ends up being camp. I've heard of people being a triple threat of a writer, director, producer, but you seem to wear all the hats. 
it's amazing to see the credits of any of your films and to see you know, the editing, the composing, the art, soundtrack, all of this kind of stuff. Did you do that out of necessity or just because of a love of wanting to do it? I've always made films as like an artist working in their studio. And that's just the way I'm comfortable working. And I'm better at that than I am at collaborating with other people or explaining to them what I want. And most of the problems I've had on sets is when I try to delegate artistic, creative tasks. But, you know, it's almost like getting someone to paint half your painting for you. It just doesn't, it doesn't work out for me to, to give stuff to people usually. Like I can give stuff to DPs, to makeup artists, but I've even had a really hard time with DPs because a DP likes to create the vision of the film. I've had to be very careful in who I select as a DP and how I work with them because the lighting is and the framing is very much part of the whole feeling of the film. So I'm trying to create a feeling. The easiest way for me to do that is just to do it. You know, sometimes it's easier to do something yourself and explain to somebody how to do it. The costumes for my new film, The Love, which really took me a long time to do, and I was really considering giving that to someone. Like, I really wanted to. I didn't want to do all that work. And what happened was, at first I tried to hire a designer, fashion designer friend of mine who's extremely talented. Um, first of all, I couldn't afford her, even though she was a friend. Second of all, she didn't have the time. And then third of all, what happened was, I thought, you know, the, one, one of the reasons she didn't have the time was because there's so much involved in, like, drafting Renaissance medieval patterns. So I told her, oh, I'll get the patterns. And I thought, well, I'll work with somebody else, and I'll just give them the patterns. And what I found was that there weren't any patterns for the period I was doing. So I thought, well, I'll make the patterns, and I'll give them. And then as I was making the patterns, I realized that there was so much going on in terms of choices that I was making that would kind of that were really crucial I didn't want to give away. So it, it, just, it kind of just keeps working out like that, you know? Like when I was choosing fabrics, I realized that I was very, very, very picky about what fabrics I would use or what trims I would use. It was very personal. Because I looked at so much Renaissance medieval clothing online, designers who made it, and I didn't like anything they were making. I, I didn't like the period they were doing. I wanted to do a slightly earlier period. I didn't like the trims they were using, like their fabrics. So that as long as I can collaborate closely with someone, I can get it done. But actually, I realized, unless I'm actually shopping for the trims myself, I can't really explain to someone because my reference is so complicated. I don't, I don't want it to just look medieval. I want it to look medieval and like a 60s musical, something that might have Donovan in it, you know. And, you know, I'm trying to reference things with the fabrics that are not just one thing. And so I kind of know it when I see it. Like, I know what the trim is that sparks. Not only medieval, but but musical comedy. I don't know if somebody else can do that. That isn't me, you know? When it came to The Love Witch, I mean, because you've been the star of your own productions for at least all of the films of yours that I've seen so far, even being the main lead in Viva, why the decision to stay behind the camera this time? Well, you know, after I made Viva, or even actually while I was shooting Viva, I made the decision that if I'm going to get, you know, like you said, do so many things on the film. I made the decision that if I'm going to get something up, it's going to be acting. Because <laughs> acting is not, I don't think it's my strong suit. I think there are other people that are better at acting than me. <laughs> and I also think that in some ways it's more rewarding to work with actors than to just be an actor in terms of like getting, getting it exactly right. Because I can't see myself very hard to direct camera movement when you're um, in trust to DP because I don't have playback on the set. You know, I just have to trust. You know, looking through the camera at the actors is much better than just being in front of the camera not being able to see. 
until you get the dailies, because I'm shooting on film and we don't have playback. You know, it's very stressful. Doing a feature, you know, Viva, I did a feature where I was the lead. It wasn't a good experience for me. So, you know, I wasn't enjoying acting that, you know, and I, and I didn't think I did a, a, as good a job as, as I wanted to because I didn't have somebody directing me. I might act again in the future, but only if I could actually maybe go back to school and study acting or something, because the the quality of acting I want in my films, I'm I'm not at that level. I want people, you know, who really focus on just acting, because I think that's such a difficult thing to do. I'm actually at this point quite good at costumes and and production design, but I don't think I'm acting from the same level. I know it's probably, like, horrible to admit that. (laughs) I think most people who see Samantha Robinson and The Love Witch will say she is better than I ever was because that's all she does you know and she also had the benefit of being trained by me for months so like it was that collaboration that was really valuable to me now it was nine years between Viva and the Love Witch coming out is that entire time spent preparing for the Love Witch because I know there is so much work involved in doing this seven years of it. I spent about two years promoting my last film because I didn't have a theatrical distributor and I wanted theatrical distribution and I did all the graphic design all the posters and all the promotion. I traveled with it for two years to festivals and for release. So two years was just eaten up, completely eaten up by that last film. But then the seven years, yeah, was spent making love, which the first two was just writing the script because I had so much. I read hundreds of books about witchcraft and about narcissism sociopathy, watched so many movies, and I also was trying to teach myself how to write a conventional screenplay, which I'd never done before. It's very, actually very difficult to do. I was trying to write a conventional narrative, and that's not, it's not as easy to do as people might think. So I studied screenwriting. So it is like I went back to school in a way, for, you know, and then after that, and spent really five years making the picture, three of which were pre-production. Again, it took me an entire year to make the uh, Renaissance medieval costumes about half a year to make Samantha's wardrobe, the rest of the wardrobe. And I made a lot of the paintings. I composed music. So everything takes time. You know, you'd be like a whole summer painting, you know, and a whole spring composing music. You know, and half a year goes by. <laughs> and all you, ha- all you have is a few songs and a few this. And I got just what I wanted, complete control. So the shooting and the editing didn't take that long. It was all the prep. We shot it just in a few weeks, and I edited pretty fast. Um, so... Who did all the uh, artwork for The Love Witch? I did about 80% of it, and then about 20% I hired um, people to do. Like Elaine's paintings that she paints, I hired an artist to do that. It's very talented because they were kind of a... I wanted this kind of tight album cover-looking artwork, and my paintings more loose. I wanted somebody who's more precise, so I hired someone to do those, which I think are the best paintings in the film. And there were a few other paintings and the erotic drawings that Elaine's erotic drawings, which are really disturbing. That was done by another friend of mine. But yeah, I did most of the paintings. And so I said, I just spent one summer and I just painted, you know. And my tra- my initial training, you know, I went to undergraduate and part of graduate school as a painter. And uh, I hadn't done it in years at all. Like the only drawing painting I ever do is, is for set sketches and, and stuff. So um, set and costume sketches. So it was kind of fun to paint again, you know. But again, I'm used to painting. I've done it. I did it for years. So my dad's a painter too. My dad's a, an artist. That's all he does. So I grew up with painting. But yeah, I mean they're just props. You know, they're not great paintings. I'm just trying to make. I was just trying to make a cool painting. Kind of along those lines, when it came to some of the animated sequences for something like Viva, who was doing the artwork for that? Well, I did the animation for Viva, but it, again, it was a situation where I spent like weeks, like actually looking for someone that was an animator, and I couldn't get anyone to do it. 
because it was so much work. I mean, just a 30-second hand-drawn animation sequence, nobody would do it for the budget that I had. And also, I think nobody knew exactly what I wanted. So I just started drawing. You know, I went and got, you know, a light board and the, the sort of animation pegs. <laughs> I just got some animation paper and just started drawing. It's like, not very difficult. I mean, it's very simple Peter Max type of animation. I thought, well, look, I've spent like four weeks looking for someone. I could just, if I spent that time just drawing, you know, I could just like draw and then I'd be done with it. Now, I did see at least one or two familiar faces when it came to the Love Witch, but when it came to casting, I mean, where did you find somebody like a Samantha Robinson? Well, she's just a find. That's just like luck, you know, that I found her at all. I mean, um, I did just a conventional casting call. I put a breakdown out and agents sent me their clients and announced it was somebody who came and read for me, you know. <clears throat> and I didn't know right away that she was my Love Witch, though, because we had to create that character together. I mean, she didn't come in doing that, whatever she was doing in the movie. She was a very beautiful, very skilled actress, but she was nothing like a character. Nobody was. Actually, nobody came in red, did anything anywhere near what I wanted for the character. So <clears throat> I knew that I'd have to work with someone to bring out the qualities of the character. She had a lot of natural qualities that I could see in her just as a person. I was observing her that I thought were very love-witchy. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to use those qualities. So... I was open to just, I was open to a lot of different things with the Love Witch, with who I would cast. I was open to, but what I really wanted to do was use that woman's personality to create the character. You wouldn't think, because my movie seems so stylized in terms of the acting, that I would work that way, but actually I do. You know, actually, it's kind of naturalistic the way I work with people. Like, I, I get them to use their own stuff, you know? I think that's why she seemed so right for it, is because I got her to use everything that's in herself for the character and even adapted the script for her changed some of the changed some of the writing from the scenes to go with her who she is and you know the character ended up being more innocent than how i wrote it that's that's one thing that samantha brought to it she wasn't as evil as how i wrote the character the character is really a sociopath and she has this kind of sweetness about her and actually i thought that made in some ways the movie better more complex because you could really sympathize with her when she falls in love or when she's frightened. So she had all this dimensionality that she brought. Another actress might have been more of a siren, more of a man killer. I was open to that too. I was open to hiring an actress that was a real man killer, just a man eater, you know? <laughs> or I was open to a woman that would be like a little bit, like more sociopathic the way Catherine Deneuve is in Repulsion. Somebody's more inward and more freaky. So I was, you know, it could have gone many different ways. Is it wrong that I'm kind of pulling for this psychopathic character throughout the film? No, and I think that's one that's one thing that was written into the script because, you know, that you would feel sympathy for her because she really is just looking for love and she doesn't know how to find it. She's not really that aware of her own sociopathy and she's been abused. She's kind of been a victim. You know, it's obvious that what made her the way she is is a history of abuse, which creates sympathy. So that was that was very much written into it. And I think, again, her performance, her, her bringing her performance so much from the inside and being such a real person makes you feel sympathy for her as well. What were some of the biggest challenges when you're trying to make this film? I don't know that I had any really big challenges. I'm actually quite experienced now in making films. I mean, there was like, there was like millions of challenges making a film. You know, like everything is a big challenge. Like, I mean, it was really hard for me to write Period in for period instruments. That was hard. I'd never done that before. I don't really have a, any experience writing for ensembles. That was kind of hard. 
it was really hard on the set because I didn't have the support that I needed. And in a film like this, that's so ambitious. If you don't have everybody on the set pulling for you on your side, it's going to be really hard. And, and I didn't. I didn't have a very good support team in some departments. It's not, not very good at all. So that was very, very hard. And that's one reason I do everything myself, because I always have to be ready if some, somebody's failing on the job to take over their job. And so I do that. You know, I do that on movies because what I can't afford is for the whole thing to just fall apart. A couple of rotten hangs, you know, I can't. That's not an option for me, you know, after working this hard and getting this money and time together. It's not an option for me just to have something fall apart. But when you're working on a low budget, you don't always get the best people. Not everyone on the set is going to be the best person. It was not as hard as my last film. It was easier because I had a better crew. But um, there's still some rotten eggs in the crew. When it comes to Viva, I heard a rumor recently that people get together sometimes and actually dress up and have Viva parties. Is that true? Well, that's what I've heard. <laughs> um, I've had people tell me, even my DP said he was invited to a party like that. He didn't even, they didn't even know he was a DP. He just like, invited to a party and he says Viva playing on the wall he's like I saw that you know so yeah it happened I hear about it happening all the time people tell me maybe that should be brought back and play on the midnight circuit like a Rocky Horror if that's happening I mean it's happening with the Love Witch too people are putting on makeup they're dressing with Elaine doing her makeup and, and hair they're posting on Twitter you know people doing that you must have to budget so much for wigs when it comes to your films Oh, wigs don't cost that much. I mean, Elaine's wig did actually, that was a human hair wig. So that, that was kind of pricey. <laughs> but the rest of the wigs are synthetic. She was the only one wearing a wig in this movie. Actually, that was people's hair. Nobody else wore a wig. I love watching Sheila in Viva and how her hair changes from scene to scene. She just wears some amazing hairstyles. Well, she was in a wig, but we, you know, we styled it differently. I mean, her hair is, is light blonde like that, but we wanted it fuller, like, you know, the falls and things that were in the 60s to look like that kind of, that kind of look, that um, Bridget Bardot look, you know, where you have a fall on top of your hair. <laughs> I wasn't wearing a wig in Viva, though. I never wore a wig. What's been the reception so far? People love it. I mean, it's a, yeah, I guess it's a fun movie, right? It's entertaining and it's fun and it has some content. But what I'm really happy about is that people are actually talking a little bit about the content, whereas Viva, they they mostly didn't. I mean, a few people did, but mostly um, they were talking just about the look of it. And for The Love Witch, most people are mostly talking about the look of it as well. But they will say, like in the very last sentence, they'll say, oh, and it also has content. You know, that's all good. <laughs> I mean, I think all my films have content, but I think the style can be distracting, so that especially on a first viewing, it's hard to get the content, but I also think that Incubus and Diva and my other films, they would not be cult films if they didn't have content, because I think it's boring to have a film just be visual, like fun visually. A movie that's just good visually and has nothing else going on psychologically is not a movie people want to watch over and over again. Even if they, they may not be aware of what the content is, it's the content that's actually driving the entertainment. Well, yeah, both Viva and The Love Witch have so much to say, uh, especially when it comes to the role of women in society. And it was just, uh, I mean, I just rewatched Viva last week. And, yeah, it, it holds up. And the issues that it brings up then are still as important now. It's because they're issues and they're painful, but they're told in a funny way that it becomes universal. Because everybody's experienced discrimination, alienation, you know, people turning on them, you know, feeling persecuted in different ways. 
and if you do it in a in a certain way, it can be funny. You know, it can be very funny that that's happening, or people can relate to it. And I think that's similar in the Love with Chan and Diva. It's about a main character who is being persecuted in a way. But the difference in Diva is the character I played was innocent, whereas Samantha Robinson's character Elaine is a sociopath. But in a weird way, they're kind of they're all they're similar. You know, because <laughs> they're living in the same kind of world, the same kind of structures. It's just they chose different paths in life. My character in Viva decided to become catatonic in response to the world, and this other character decided to seize control of her life and do something about it. But they're really kind of living in the same world, and they're sort of in the same situation in a way, you know? Yeah, I was actually surprised that The Love Witch seems to be set more in modern times than during the 60s or 70s. Yeah, I did set it in modern times, but it's still, like, a lot of people still kind of think it's set in the late 60s because I think of her styling and the fact that the sets are kind of traditional, traditionally styled. But I, on purpose, you know, made Trish drive a modern BMW and let all the cars be the cars they were everywhere. I had computers in the police station. I had a cell phone just to make sure that people knew. But some people still don't get it. You know, uh, people sent complaining that there are anachronisms, like like as if I was saying copy, you know, by putting modern cars in it. Like, oh, she made a mistake. That's not, you know, it's like okay, I made a mistake. Like really, because if you could make, like as if you could make a film that's so meticulous and make that kind of mistake, it's so ridiculous. Yeah, you would just forget, and somebody would pull out a cell phone, right? Yeah, I would just forget. Like I have, I have a character pulling out a cell phone making a call, and I just didn't know. I didn't know that there weren't cell phones in 1967. You know, I just forgot. Gosh, you're so sloppy. Yeah. And some people, like, don't notice that there's a modern BMW or modern cars or computers all throughout the movie. And so then when they see the cell phone, they're like, hey, wait a minute. You know, but that, that means they're not observant, you know? Yeah, you did bring up the look of, of your works. And it is just such a feast for the eye to look at these films. Who are some of your inspirations when it comes to the look of these movies? I just watch so many classic movies. I'm always watching the set design and the decor. For this one, I was looking at Hitchcock's color films, like The Birds and Marnie, Vertigo, but not for the design. The design, that's for the lighting. The design is kind of, I couldn't find any references for the design I wanted. I had this thing in my mind, this kind of wacky idea about the set design, and I couldn't find it in any movie, so I just made it up, based on like color schemes from the soft tarot deck. So Pub Foss deck has sun colors and moon colors, and so I made her apartment that way. Like, her living room is all orange, yellow, and red, the sun room. Her magic room and dining room are moon rooms, so all blue and purple. Her bedroom is red, which signifies lust. The lust cup is red. There's, like, red filters on things, so it's all sex and lust. Just a lot of color symbolism. Pink for the tea room, that's girlhood. I found it interesting that uh, Elaine, her pursuit of men is very fascinating. And then when the men end up, or at least some of the men end up being not necessarily as strong. If, I don't know if I'm reading this right, but it seems like the men end up being a lot weaker than she would like them to be. Well, they just fall apart. They just completely fall apart. But that's because my thesis is that men can't handle love very well. They just fall apart. Like they like sex, but they don't like intimacy. They don't like love. It makes them feel like, like their manliness is being sapped out to have to form an intimate relationship with a woman. And I don't think this part of the film is based on fantasy. <laughs> I think um, I'm taking that from uh, my life. She doesn't seem to have very much support when it comes to her female friends either. Well, women pit themselves against one another depending on type. 
like she and Trish are, are opposites. They're opposite types. She's, she's someone who's very into makeup and being pretty and being a certain kind of femme fatale. And Trish is, 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 into, is totally not into any of that. She's not into makeup. She doesn't want to present herself that way. So they're opposites. But then she has a lot in common with her fellow witch friend, Barbara, the high priestess. They're both kind of burlesque dancers, ex-burlesque dancers. You know, they like to style themselves that way. So they have a kind of harmony. It definitely seems like the burlesque plays a great role in this as far as that idea of self-empowerment and being comfortable with your own, with your own body. Well, that's a debate in feminism that is very difficult. I would say that I'm almost kind of a radical feminist in many ways, except for on that one point. That's a sticking point for me. And I think that there is such a thing as female sexuality, and when it's healthy, that it can take many different expressions, including um, sexual dancing or, 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 or just joy and pleasure in your own body. That's why I'm so into, you know, sort of like female drag, like Mae West did it. It's like constructing yourself as a woman on purpose, I think, gives you a lot of power. Because then it's not something that's being done to you by other people against your will. You're sexualizing yourself out of your own pleasure, out of your own agency. And I think this is this is something, because I actually made that transition myself. I actually went through a period when I was a teenager where I decided I wanted to control my image. So I went, I spent a whole year dressing like a boy, cut my hair short, and then wear men's clothes, exclusively men's clothes for a year. And then I decided to be a woman. <laughs> I actually dyed my hair platinum, and I started dressing like Marilyn Monroe in tight dresses and stuff like that, tight wiggle dresses, and I just, um, I tested that. I found that I enjoyed being a woman more than trying to be a boy. There was something very liberating in it, in the choice, because I felt like, I didn't feel like I was being, you know, forced to do it. I felt like I decided to do it, and it felt better, and it felt more playful, and it felt more fun, and it felt, I felt like I had more power. And the other thing I found was that when I was dressed as a boy, um, I didn't feel that men treated me any differently. I didn't feel like they stopped sexualizing me at all. In fact, they actually, I think they even maybe sexualized me even more. But I felt like it wasn't really under my control. Like, I felt like, like look, I'm being asked, you know, so I'm, I'm asking them not to look at me, but they're still doing it. You know, I'm asking them not to try to rape me, they're still doing it. So it's like, it felt really like, I felt really angry about that period in a way. Like, the, the idea that... It doesn't really matter what you do. So I think the women who have never tried both things sometimes don't know. Like sometimes women don't know that it doesn't matter sometimes. Like if you're young and if people find you attractive, it really doesn't matter. It's not like girls who dress a certain way are going to get all this attention and girls who don't or not. It's just going to be At least in my case, it didn't matter at all. <laughs> absolutely no, it absolutely no difference. I wasn't fooling anyone, you know. So it just makes you feel like you're you're in control of the situation. Well, since you said that you're a radical feminist, I I now am very afraid. My manhood is completely threatened by yeah, you. By the way, but all, all all that really means when you say you're a radical feminist, people misunderstand what that means. It means that you actually stand up for women's rights. That's all it means. That you think women's rights are human rights, and that and that you that you stick up for them. Or that you, or that you acknowledge there's such a thing as a patriarchy, that there's such a thing as systemic social power, and that you take that seriously. I mean, there are systemic social structures, you know, and it's with race as well, and it's with class, and it's just it's something you would say like maybe a liberal feminist is someone who might call herself a feminist, but actually is allowing herself to be unaware of most of the major issues in systemic social injustice. 
I think it's really, really unfortunate the way feminists have been slammed, but I also am really sad about radical feminists and the way they talk on the internet and stuff, because actually I can't really align myself with them because I've tried to be part of their forums and things, and I'm, I'm just booted off them, because I'm actually, I am more, much way more liberal than anybody on those forums, meaning that I actually love men. <laughs> I think of them as, you know, collaborators and partners. People have fear of radical feminists because Basically, they, they say they don't hate men, but like a lot of them do, right? So that's a problem. And that really, really damages their cause. So it's like I'm with them on a lot of the issues, but there's like this underlying issue that a lot of them have they want to admit, which is just they really are out to reverse, you know, reverse the violence, like do the violence back to men. And I just don't believe in that at all. So the fact that I love men, I'm nice to men, I want to work with them. I'm kind to them. I, I genuinely really do. I love people and I love women and men. That actually makes me unqualified <laughs> to be having conversations with them, even though like politically I'm sort of with them in other ways. And I think that's in my work. I think the love of people is in my work so that even though there's some things about men, you know, that they're not perfect. I also have women aren't perfect. You know, I have everybody who's kind of flawed and everybody's a problem. And, and there isn't a sort of a militant, angry, unfair to you know what I mean? I, I like to have this fairness in my work about when I create characters. I try to make them realistic and I try to show the good and bad of people. And and I wouldn't have made Elaine a sociopath had I wanted to just say women are better than men, you know? She's a deeply flawed character. And that's because I see that too, right? Women... And I'm showing like women and men and the problems they, they both have, you know. Have you experienced negative things as far as being a female director in a predominantly male-oriented uh, uh, profession? Well, here's the thing, and, and this is the thing a lot of people don't realize, men and women. And because until you've tried to actually have a voice, like a distinctive feminine voice in the world, you won't know what it's like. To, to be doing that and, and, and the reactions you get. I found that, um, almost everything that I've tried to do has been blocked. And I mean, I'm, I'm starting, we're starting like in school. We're starting with male teachers in school, trying to block in all kinds of ways, like people trying to discourage you from doing anything, being anything. Now this, this happens starting when you're little. Like nobody encourages you to do anything, be anything, accomplish anything. You're encouraged so many, in so many ways to be mediocre and to serve other people. So that when you try, start trying to be an artist or you, try, you, you have a voice or something, there's a lot of resistance. And it's more than you would think. It's like it's almost like an, a resistance you face every single day of your life. Now, I, I know it's hard for everybody out there who's trying to be creative, but you can imagine you go out on the street, like just out anywhere, you're, you're talking to someone, and a man that you speak to, you tell them what you do, is already going to be telling you not to do it or, or assuming that you're mediocre at what you do. Assuming that there's something, you know, that you're uppity, that you're unqualified. So this actually goes into your consciousness and your daily consciousness. It goes into your self-esteem and it goes into the decisions that you make. I've tried to not make it go into the decisions I make. But even like the press, I would say, even the press for Viva, there's a tone to the negative press. It's not the same as the tone to other negative press that other filmmakers get. Except for female directors, I've noticed they get the same tone in their press. Not male directors, different tone. Tone is like, she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know how to make a film. She doesn't know how to do this. She doesn't know how to do that. I remember like Margaret Thatcher had a quote that said that her detractors, if they saw her walk on water, they'd say it's because she, she didn't know how to swim. So it's a little bit like that, you know? You see, you see Hillary Clinton getting it. I mean, she doesn't know, she doesn't know this. She doesn't, I mean, so many of her like level of expertise that people say she doesn't know how to do things. That's not something that men get. 
I mean, I was in Edinburgh. Here's a really good example. I was just in Edinburgh screening my film there. And there was a panel. It was like a genre panel. And people were talking about their, about genre in relation to the work. And I, they were specifically asking about, you know, do, do, would you market your film as a horror film and what are the positives and negatives? And I said, well, my film is basically an arts house film, but it's probably a good thing to market it as horror because there's horror elements and there's, there's a healthy marketplace for that. And I'm trying to make films about, you know, sort of like things that happen to women. So there was a guy there. Um, who went to the genre panel, and then he went to my screening. And he confronted me after the screening. And he said, you really shouldn't talk to... I saw. I was at your panel, I saw your movie. I thought your movie was really fun, and I really loved it. But you really shouldn't talk about it that way. So he's telling me to not talk about my film in the way I'm talking about it. He's warning me that it will be off-putting to people if I say I'm making films with feminine. I didn't even use the word feminist. I would never use the F word on a panel. See, I'm careful not to do that sometimes, right? But he's telling me, like, how I should talk about my film. You know, he wouldn't do that to a man. You wouldn't go up to a man and say, this is how you should not talk about your film. I heard you talking about it, and you have to not talk about it like that. So it's sort of like that. That's the kind of comment I get all the time, you know. Do this, don't do that. You know, you're not qualified to do this. You know, you're full of shit. He, he even said he heard that I did the production design myself, design myself and he said, well, it, it's probably production design is probably shit. So, and he said, well, but actually I thought in production design was really good. So what I'm saying is like you have a handicap when you first start out. It was good he said that to me because it brought me back to the reality of a lot of people in the audience are going to assume that everything you do is shit because you're a woman. You know what I'm saying? So they're, they're coming in with that chip on their shoulder that what you're doing is shit. You have no idea. So what I'm saying, that's what it's like to be a woman, and that's how I experience the patriarchy. So I experience the patriarchy in a very real, everyday kind of way. It's like on the Internet, there's like Internet misogyny that's through the roof where you have to have real fear to express yourself. The only other filmmaker I've ever heard, you know, who, who's been talked about with the, with the same kind of, like, um, disrespect with myself is Catherine Braillat, who's a really extremely wonderfully talented um, French director who does this work also having to do with gender and sexuality. And I just think that men can sometimes become very threatened by a woman talking about sexuality because men feel that they own female sexuality and I you know even I think Russ Meyer was quoted as saying women don't know anything about sex and of course they don't know anything about male I mean they might know something about sex they don't necessarily know about male se but sexuality but that's what's considered the only sexuality out there so I think it's very threatening to men to talk about female sexuality and that's why people say, say don't say that don't talk about that because what they're really saying is don't talk about female desire, don't talk about female sexuality, don't talk about female pleasure, because I don't want to hear about it. And other guys don't want to hear about it either. They want to have their own fantasy. So he's telling me, let people watch films the way they want to watch it. I was saying, well, of course they can, everybody, <laughs> of course it's the goal to have everyone watch films the way they want to watch it. Does that mean I can't have a voice too? It's my film. I'm not allowed to have a voice. So it's like they have the whole, they have the whole world. But you can't have even a tiny corner of the world, like a little room, not even one little room to yourself. That's what patriarchy is. That's what it is. Well, speaking of the Internet, where's the best place for people to find out more about the film and where it's going to be screened? Well, I'm updating my Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Productions, And I'm updating my website, which is lifeofastartup.com. And I'm on Twitter, <laughs> updating there. 
at, at Nissana Biller. And so I'm, you know, and then my distributor is Oscilloscope, but I think I'm promoting it more than they are at this point because it's not in release yet in general release. So probably my website and Facebook and stuff are the best way to stay updated. I see some screenings coming up in Australia. Are you actually going to Australia with the film? I'm not. I have three screenings coming up in Australia, and I'm not going. Australia is really far away, and I love Melbourne. I've been there before, but actually, they didn't have the budget to bring me out, so I, and it's just um, it's just too much. And I actually um, also have to be in Poland at around that same time. So I'm going to I'm at the New Horizons Film Festival in Poland. They're doing a retrospective. Cool. So um, I'll be there. So you know. Well, Annabelle, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really good talk. I'm glad that you were able to uh, kind of spread the gospel a little bit here. <laughs> I mean, I hope I didn't complain too much about women's issues, but you did ask, and it's a, it's a kind of a trigger thing for me when people ask. I have a lot of stuff to say, so I hope it wasn't a bummer, a bummer for your for your for your listeners. I think it's great because I think, you know, people tend to just kind of brush it under the rug. So it was really good to hear. The last thing I want when people are watching my films is to feel guilty or to feel like they're not watching in the wrong, in the right way or to feel like they have to be aware of something they're not already aware of. You know, the film's entertainment and it's meant to be enjoyed on any level people want to enjoy it on, even if that's a sexist level. That's their consciousness and that's how they want it. That's, you know, more power to them. And we are talking about the Love Witch. Well, pretty much we're talking about the work of Anna Beller. I'm very curious your take on Viva. Viva La Viva. I thought it was fantastic. And it really, you know, because I think there's always a real risk when modern filmmakers try to do anything that's retro or styled in like a retro film way. Because it's, it's, it's almost impossible, you know, to really get it nailed correctly. But yet... Man, she did it. She did it with Viva. And, and, and on top of that, trying to do, you know, a film that is like, I almost to me, I felt like it was sort of um, styled in a way that was like Love American style meets like, yeah, like Radley Metzger. Radley Metzger directed Love American style, but yet made it really smart. That show was not smart. Uh, no offense no. to anybody who's a fan of that show. I'm sorry, but it's, it wasn't, it was not the greatest of shows. But um 
but yeah, I I thought it was fantastic. I just thought, um, again, not unlike the love, which I just thought all the all the visuals and designs and all of just all of the elements that created the atmosphere and look of that film were just on point and perfect. I thought the message was really interesting because uh, and I, I also felt like there was definitely like a lot of influence, especially with the uh, the orgy scene uh, that's towards the latter part of the film of like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. There's definitely like a Z man. I feel like Z man is like a patron angel or something over over some over half of this film. Not all of it, but there's definitely I think a Ronnie Z man influence. Which I mean, if that's all you need to tell me. If like you're like, hey, this there's a Z man influence in a film, I'm probably gonna love it. I absolutely loved it. We should probably say a little bit as far as what it's actually about. So Viva is the story of. Of two couples, um, Barbie and Rick. Yeah, and she and Sheila and Mark are their Sheila and Mark, ha- are their right. sort of hip, sexy, groovy neighbors. Oh my god! And Jared Sanford again in this one as Mark. Seeing this with an audience, I got to see this with a full house at the Maryland Film Festival years ago, and just Mark and that insane laugh, just took the house down after he did it probably like four or five times you couldn't help but laugh when he's laughing because it is just nuts when he's doing it there are more than a thousand ways to blend whiskey in scotland but doers never varies so why should we His performance is so great and so just nutty and fascinating and charismatic in this film that every time he would show up, I would immediately be like, yes. Like, I was like, <laughs> yes, it's Mark. Like, <laughs> I was more Mark, you know. Um, in my head, I I think are, can we are we spoiling Viva? I should probably ask that real quick. Even if you know what happens in this film, it still is such a delight to watch. Oh, absolutely! It is it, the whole film is just two hours of pure delight. In my head, like I wanted the ending, and this would not have worked. And it's a smart thing Anna Biller didn't do this, but this is just my weird minds working. I kind of wanted like Barbie to run off with Mark. Just because I just thought he was so awesome. <laughs> I was like, just run off with him. I know he drinks too much and he's kind of sleazy. But so much of that was Sanford's performance. It was just that laugh, the swagger, just he owned it. Like he just inhabited that role like a tauntaun. He just absolutely, one of, one of, one of my favorite performances I've, I've seen probably in a long time. I thought he was just, I mean, everybody's great in it. I thought Anna, of course, uh, in this film, Anna is the star of it. She plays Barbie. AKA Viva herself. AKA Viva herself. I thought Anna was, you know, great. She has such a great look to her. She has the sauciest eyebrow arch. Oh, yes. I was. I wish I could do that. I've tried doing that, and I look like I'm kind of having a mini stroke. It does not, <laughs> not all women can do that eyebrow. <laughs> but Anna Biller rocks it, and um, I thought she was, I thought she was quite good, and, um, you know, added kind of the right amount of, you know, this character is kind of like, she's got a little bit of a tigress in her, but at the same time, she's part of her wants to conform and she loves her husband and she wants to make him happy even though he's honestly a bit of a dick i really did not like her husband in this film he was rick he's a total just chet you know to me like when i say chet i mean a total kind of guy smiley like you know like hi honey but then you you know again under the surface is a total just like under the thumb 
oppressor type who golfs because golf is the sport of the oppressor and <laughs> in, in my good to know it's everybody it's if somebody's oppressing you they play golf um i'm i'm i not everybody plays golf as an oppressor i should probably clear that so i don't get any hate mail but um you know he's just a total chat he's square he's a total just oppressive square who's boring he's like oatmeal he's like you know, just unflavored oatmeal of a man. And mysteriously, she's in love with him. But, you know, but she's torn because she, you know, you can't, nobody can live their adult life in servitude by choice. You know, like you're going to have like your own desires and ambitions. And honestly, just waiting around to feed some, you know, asshole Swedish meatballs is going to get boring. You're, you know, and, and she does get bored. Yeah, and just uh, I love her kind of entree into this whole other world that she goes uh, into, this whole grand adventure that she goes on in this film through the magazines, through the old Playboy magazine, through the titular Viva magazine, and just how you know seeing this lifestyle being presented to her kind of, at least for me, seems to take her on this adventure when she and Sheila – end up going to the madam and <laughs> becoming prostitutes. And I love how they're just like, oh, that sounds very fun. Yeah. Oh, it's an adventure. It's an adventure. I love Sheila in particular, where she's like, oh, wow, I've always thought it'd be so romantic to be a prostitute, you know? <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, it's um and her whole musical number. I mean, cuz Oh that's, god, the White Horse song. Oh my. Oh man. Beautiful. And it comes out of no I mean, cuz up to this point you're over an hour into the movie. There's been no musical numbers. And then out of almost seemingly nowhere, you get this amazing and the whole I love that number with how it's I mean, I love the styling and all of the film, but like that number in particular looks like a just candy coated 1970s ad you know advertisement it just looks oh yeah she looks perfect the the colors the white horse the miss the the way that the white horse whiskey which by the way i don't know i guess whiskey used to come in a jug back then <laughs> like when you see Marcus sheila having whiskey in the morning and it's in a jug i'm like holy shit like a I have never seen a whiskey jug. I feel like my life's been a little empty now. I've seen jug wine, <laughs> but not not whiskey. But um, but that whole scene and the music's great in it, and that sort of like kicks off like a lot of. Um, there's there's several musical numbers that follow after that, and they're all great. Yeah, I love when they're at the hippie commune or the nudist commune, I should say, and that song from the, the one of her clients. And uh, again, it feels very similar insofar as the way that Barbie is looking for, uh, you know, the, the different man and the way that she goes through these different men and is finding good and bad with each of them kind of feels like uh, what we what we saw with Elaine in The Love Witch and the way that she sees kind of the pluses and minuses. But she finds the minuses very quickly and she finds them very troubling. So she takes care of them in her own way, whereas Barbie can kind of move on from one to the next. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't kill anybody. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, because, you know, Barbie at her core is basically, she's not crazy. She's just trying to kind of, I think, find find her own way and, and find some ownership of herself because she's basically, you know, there's a, a mention later on the film that she lost her parents when she was a little girl 
girl and grew up in a convent and the convent didn't know what to do with her and they put her in public school when she was 14 and presumably like a lot of uh, women in that era um probably as soon as she graduated probably got married you know probably married a you know, I keep wanting to call him Chet, Rick, <laughs> Rick uh, shortly thereafter. So she's never had a chance probably to have a period of her life that was just hers, just her own. So that's kind of like her journey. But it's done in such a way that's really, really smart because, you know, I, I think having women find their sexual discovery through several lovers. I mean, that's obviously nothing new. I mean, Emmanuel famously did it, but there were definitely films in the 60s and probably beforehand that did that as well. But in those films, the women are always super willing. Like, you know, oh, here's this strange man on a plane and he made love to me and it was glorious. You know, it's like that. Where with with Barbie slash Viva... She's immediately like, ooh, can we slow down? You know, like, I want to be the one to call the shot. And I thought that was kind of cool to have her, to basically her own her sexuality in a way to where she's like, no, I will decide when you can touch me. I mean, she actually says that. Really don't think you ever would have seen that in a in an old school sexploitation film or even an, a, an erotic art film like Emmanuel. I mean, cause even though Emmanuel gets at one point, there is like a rape scene in it. I mean, afterwards, like her French, her older French sort of um, confidant or guide or what, you know, he's like, you know, just rambles on something about love and Eros or some shit like that. That film really makes no sense by the way. <laughs> Emmanuel <laughs> has that logic in that movie is from Mars, but I digress, but there's a, there's a great logic that works here in Viva. And it, and again, I just love how subversive that is because there is like some dialogue that's really funny, and I think a lot of people go into it thinking, "Oh, this is going to be really kitschy and and funny," and it is in some ways. But then there's you realize there's so many other layers um, going on in a way that doesn't just hammer the point home. I mean, right down and spoiler alert, you have you know Barbie ends up reconnecting with Rick, even though like the whole thing, he kind of finally comes back to her and then thinks that she's been, you know, having an affair with Mark, even though that wasn't the case. Like Mark tries to comes over drunk and gets a little fresh with her. And then she, you know, bites him and he's like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. And he goes home and, but then Rick gets hit by a car, which I, yes. I was sort of hoping it killed him. That's not a nice thing to wish on somebody, but I would say such a dick. You're like, yes, and, you know, good. And she'll go like, you know, tear up the world on her own terms, you know, marry Tyler Moore it up, you know, and um, and you're like, oh, shit, he's still alive, and she's nursing him back to health, but then her and, you know, her and Sheila both get to have, like, this Jane Russell, Marilyn Monroe number uh, together at the end, so she, she at least gets to find something on her, like, it's a middle, it's not a totally happy ending because she's still with Rick, but at least she's getting to have something that's her own, which is cool. But it's also probably, I mean, you know, more realistic. I mean, especially that era. I mean, it's it's a nice thought to think, oh, yes, go run off and be on your own. But, you know, when you love somebody, whether or not that's a healthy situation for you, I mean, it's a little harder when you're in that kind of eye of the storm uh, thing that, like, that Barbie's in. So, Can we talk briefly about the hairdresser oh my god yes he <laughs> that was, talk about z-man ronnie barzell that was like z-man's little brother like scotty <laughs> s-man i don't know he was like like z-man's little super fey brother like the, i mean that performance fascinated me because it was almost like a side like when you think of silent films 
And I mean, actually, a lot of people, it was a lot, most of really quality silent cinema had subtle performances. But I think what a lot of people who don't watch silent films think of silent film performances, it's the real big eyes over, you know, overacting kind of school. And his performance was almost like that. It was like some sort of like Keystone, a Keystone cop, but instead of a cop, he's a fabulous, super gay, Z-Man style hairdresser. Um, and it right down to the little gold speedo, which I felt like was almost a reference to the um, the character that Z-Man's trying to seduce uh, in uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But he's uh, yeah, dressed up as Jungle Boy. <laughs> I couldn't believe when he takes off his outfit and he was just built so crazy amazing and i'm just like wait this guy and it almost looked like his head was like <laughs> superimposed on this other body i was just like what the hell this is nuts i know i was like i'm like dude dude's cut like who who fuck yeah i, I was like holy shit like his no wonder he's, he's got all the protein shakes in that cupboard i mean he's <laughs> Oh yeah, that was and I, and the the character that he ends up seducing. That dude was, I mean, that I was like, who is this goon? Like that guy was crazy. He's wearing a belt. He was so good. He was great. I was, but I was so confused. I'm like, is this? There was a lot of sexual ambiguity with that character because at first he's kind of like, you know you don't look at me like that. You know, he's like that. But then he, right. but then he's like, Oh, you poor, you poor baby. She passed out and a sleeping beauty's no fun to play with, but I'm here. And the dude's like, then he's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He doesn't say cool, but you know, he's, he's totally down with it. Oh yeah. He's DTF right after that. And Oh my God. If I, if I have to mention, this is such a small detail, but I loved it. The, uh, the sleazy agent character who I believe his name is Arthur. He ends up basically raping Diva, but his outfit, oh my God, like that sheer brown shirt and that lion medallion that looks like a wind chime. Like it, oh, so good. Oh my God. It was totally like, anybody who's a fan of Diva will get this reference, but Diva had this character called Rod Reuter, who... Uh, like in their in their film, like the men, I think it's in the men who make the music um, video. But Rod Reuter's like this great sleazy agent, but he's he's got the total like chest hair and shirt button way too low, and like his necklaces are like you're like is that a is that a wind chime? Did he just take a wind chime off somebody's porch and just fasten it around his neck? I mean, it's that good. Also, I also love the sleazy European uh, photographer character, uh, Clyde. He was totally like, I kept calling him in my head, asshole Davy Jones, because he was <laughs> such a dick. But he was, but he was totally, he looked like Davy Jones evil. He had that kind of, e- like, because Davy Jones was so sweet, you know? But, <laughs> but Davy Jones was like a Euro trash, like, jerk. It was him. It was like alternate universe Davy Jones. <laughs> Everybody needs to check out both of these films. Viva was just, uh, that was a delight. And it actually, you know, I loved it that it proved me wrong. Because I really, I've honestly been in the belief that I think recreating styles of the past is is not, I've never felt like it was totally impossible. But to me, it's almost like doing really great freeform jazz. You know, I mean, if it's a master doing it, it'll work. But how many people are going to be like a Coltrane or a Miles Davis? You know, not many. And uh, how many people could be Anna Biller? Well, so far, only one. And thank God we have her. 
Well, thanks to Annabella for taking the time to talk to me about The Love Witch, and thanks, Heather, for coming on the projection booth again. Yet again, one of my most regular guests. I love it. So, what has been new with you? Well, um, actually, in keeping with tonight's theme, I have recently contributed a, uh, which this is a, a new world for me, but a crossword. <laughs> a crossword. Oh, cool. I know. Um, and this is- You're like the new Will Shorts. Uh- <laughs> Yes, uh, Heather Shorts over here. Um, yeah, uh, this is the second one I've done. Um, several months ago, I got invited to participate in something called the Occult Activity Book. And I was invited to create a film-themed, an occult film-themed crossword puzzle. And it was so much fun. And uh, the two women that are spearheading this, um, a fantastic artist named Becky Munich, and uh, and also a wonderful writer and bloggist named Sarah Elizabeth. Um, they loved it so much. So that book sold out quickly. It's out of print already, and it's not even a year old. So they're doing a follow-up, and I got invited again to do another crossword. And, uh, and this time, instead of film, I'm doing a witchy-slash-tiger-beat theme, because I thought it'd be funny. And <laughs> they like it. I, that'll be up to anybody who buys this to decide. But that'll be coming out soon. And for more information on it, um, you could follow Becky uh, at Twitter at and her address is at Pinky Turtles or or Sarah, who's is at M L L E Ghoul, or you could just find me and I'll forward that forward you to them very happily. Um, I also did a collaboration piece with screenwriter slash former Gleaming Spires and Sparks band member Les Bohem, uh, which was quite fun for the upcoming Volume Eight issue of Art Decades, uh, which can be found. Uh, it's not up on Amazon, but it's about to be up on Amazon uh, very soon. And last but certainly not least, I just uh, published a piece at DiaboliqueMagazine.com about SF Brownrigg's uh, 70s backwoods horror masterwork, Scum of the Earth. Uh, it's fantastic. I highly recommend all of uh, Brownrigg's films. He is definitely a southern genre auteur. And, um, and of course, you can always find me at MondoHeather.com. Very cool. Well, I will be sure to link to as much of that stuff as I possibly can over at the website projection-booth.com. So thanks again, Heather, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, go over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more information about the movies that we talked about here. Yeah, really, you owe it to yourself to pick up a copy of Eva. You owe it to yourself to track down The Love Witch when it's playing near you or when it comes out on DVD, I definitely recommend owning that one as well. So while you're over at the website, you can also link over to our Patreon page and you can make a donation for everybody that makes a donation, even as low as a dollar a month. You can get early access to all of our episodes. So I would call that a bargain, perhaps uh, the best I've ever had. You'd be fools and Philistines not to do it. So come on, cough it up. Just two girls who have seen it all Things haven't always gone the way we planned We've gotten into some serious trouble But trouble be damned We're just two little girls from the suburbs But we can be lovers Mothers, singers, swingers, friends
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.